You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. On today's episode of Another Name for Everything, we dive into the second theme, which is if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and on our side. One thing that I was not expecting in this conversation is the way that we also saw how this living tradition evolves. We begin to play with some of the language and ask, how can this shift to be a more incarnational sense of how we're becoming in relationship to the Trinity? There seems to be such a important part of Richard's legacy is his radical humility to be open to playing with some of these terms and saying, you know what? I hadn't thought about that. Like maybe, maybe we should think about how ground of being and ground of becoming work together. I find that so awe-inspiring for, and like such a legacy for us to live into that level of humility that's open to change all the time. Yeah. Someone who's basically is the one who has curated these seven themes of the alternative orthodoxy and is also open to the way that they need to evolve and grow so that they be more true to the reality of our experience. Yeah. I really loved in this conversation how we moved Trinity from being a concept of this self-enclosed community to this dynamic creative principle at work in evolution and in our lives and onwardly outgoing, constantly manifesting I mean, I didn't grow up with that trinity, No, me neither. No, much more static. Yeah. And I also enjoyed how strangely you and I both had a bathtub story to help bring this theme to life. That was not planned, but it did happen. (laughs) We both had bathtub stories, which you will get to hear shortly. As we now turn to episode three, the second theme of the alternative orthodoxy. On today's episode, we're taking a look at the second theme, which is, if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and on our side. Paul, do you have like a story to put flesh on this one? (laughs) I do have one. So the one that came to mind for me was... It was post-college. I was in heavy deconstruction of my faith, trying to figure out what I believed. And I was actively trying to leave the church. Like I just, I just felt like I needed space. Wanted to make the case. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I was working in a group home with young adults with developmental disabilities. And it was my first day in the job, had gone through all the training. And my job that morning was to bathe a young man named Kevin who was known and prone to have violent outbursts. Going to the bathroom, tentatively nervous about how do you bathe another human being? I've actually never done that before. Most of us haven't. Kind of fearful about that. And his first move is he grabbed my wrist and scratched me. And my hands started bleeding. And so bandaged myself up. And I just thought, I just sat there and said, I I can't do this. I can't do this. Yeah. And then a, a voice within said, he is Christ. And this internal prompting that I was asked to bathe Christ. Mm. And all of a sudden I was in this flow that he is Christ, I am Christ, I am washing Christ. And then all of a sudden I was in this new flow of how I was seeing Christ in the world show up in this young man and through this very simple act of bathing someone who couldn't bathe himself. Mm. And it 
in a new way reshaped how I was approaching what it meant to be a Christian, how I saw God showing up in my daily life. So it's a very vivid story for me about Christ in the bathtub and me showing up to wash Christ. So that that's the one that popped to mind for me. How about you, Bree? Wow. That is so beautiful. Bathing Christ. I also have a bathtub story that really? is is the one that I I was thinking you work on a bathtub one. We'll, we'll, we'll complete the trinity of bathtub stories among us. I was reflecting back on, on when I started the living school and you actually had a start with Bonaventure, which I was very, very disappointed by Richard. Cause I wanted like a nuptial mystic. I wanted something mm. with more drama. Mm. Um, <laughs> I actually found myself really falling in love with the way that he talks about the Trinity and, and how you described that his description of the water wheel. I was giving Soren a bath, and at the time, he's just a little guy. He was two. He was in the bath, and as most parents of toddlers know, you don't do anything once. It's all repetitive. Mm. All play mm. is again, again. So I was pouring water from way up high down into his little outstretched cupped hands. And he just was giggling with delight at this activity. The water was hitting his hands and splashing up and splashing his little naked body. And he was looking at the light through the water. And it was just, he just loved it. So he's, you know, again, mama, again, again, mama. And the first several times I wasn't even there. I was just somewhere in my head. I was somewhere else. By the third or fourth time, I was enraptured by this act and by his wonder And his wonder opened up my wonder at water and the cyclical nature of water. And because I had been immersed in Bonaventure, thank you, Richard, (laughs) I I was drawn into this kind of mystical experience of seeing this water that I'm baptizing my two year old with is the steam off of animals' backs. Mm. It's the steam from breath of human beings. It's snowflakes, it's rivers, it's oceans. And I just, all of a sudden it was like the great history of time and this little trickle of water coming down on my son. And it brought me into such a depth of flow and presence and love and wonder that I don't even know how many agains we went through. Mm. <laughs> I know that the water was cold by the time I pulled him out because it was this this radical opening, like almost like the veil parted. And there it was. There was the Trinity. There was this life cycle, unending flow. Mm. And I was a part of it. You probably don't remember this. That was our first interaction. You were a living school student and you emailed me about that experience. You're kidding. And I remember, again, that I showed Richard the email saying, living school is brand new. And yeah. I was like, right. look at one of, one of our students. Look at what's happening. <laughs> And here I don't remember that. Forgive me. Oh no! Oh, how I neat. didn't. I didn't remember that yeah. I emailed it, but it was a you profound just, experience. Oh. So, by the way, thanks for starting with Bonaventure. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do that anymore, do they? Start with Bonaventure early, early in the it's first early. year. Yeah. yeah, it's early. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I I don't have a bathtub oh, stuff shit. <laughs> I can think of, and mine is going to sound so can priestly, you know, this year now. I will have been a priest 50 years. And to celebrate Mass so often over the years, even though I don't do it every day like most of us and priests do, I don't know how you keep doing it fresh and present. You have to put on those vestments and go through the rote words in many cases. 
And uh, that must have begun to happen 20 years ago or so. And I realized the only way I could celebrate Mass with sincerity and reverence was to really believe that all those bored-looking faces out in front of me were the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't believe it, I was going to believe it for them. And I've done that as recently as, I think, the day before yesterday. I, I just have to do it regularly. Or what I slide into, I'm ashamed to say, is a kind of careless cynicism. Oh, all these dang people are just going through the motions. And it appears that many of them are. They're coming up the aisle to go to communion, nudging one another. The teenage girls are giggling. <laughs> the teenage boys are looking at the teenage girls. It's like, how are these the body of Christ? But when I can choose, no, this is objective truth. It has nothing to do with that even they subjectively are appreciating it in this moment. Mm. The Mass is always wonderful, always. But it demands a, a change of foundational perspective from my side. Hmm. That's interesting that all three of us brought up the idea of flow or exchange. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm thinking as we dive into this theme and the Trinity, Richard, how do you see the Trinity participating in flow and evolution? What Trinitarian flow allows and makes happen is that there's no dead ends. Although it might look like it in the short order, you step back from it and wait till April, you know what I mean? Or step back from it, uh, the tragic situation, and realize it raised two people to immense maturity. Nothing seems to completely die. I mean, please don't think this is any way validating, but things as horrible as the Holocaust and Eddie Hillisome and Anne Frank and Simone Weil rise out of that. There's some kind of persistent flow that will not be stopped. It will not be stopped. And then when you take the, that the universe itself is still expanding and expanding at a faster pace of even more creativity and more creativity, it receives a universal metaphor. So uh, I guess that'd be, and once you choose to see that, you can see it. It's ever, even in very dark situations. And I admit, it's not easy very often. I feel like many of us grew up with a notion of the Trinity as this self-enclosed community. Self-enclosed. You know? And I think you quote her work. Is it Catherine Lacugna's work? Yes, on yes, God? Is yes. it God for us? God for us. In which she opens up this vision, and, and you open up this vision for us too, Richard, of that not being a, an enclosed community, but a participatory in time, through time, incarnating, manifesting, creating, it just, it puts it almost in a dynamic lens that we're in the midst of it too, that we're not, that we're in that community with mm, the Trinity. That's right. mm -hmm. And that's such a big shift. I just, I remember 
in the living school being blown away by this transition from it just being an enclosed community of like, okay, Godfather, is this a father, son, <laughs> yeah. Holy Ghost, they're just up there having a party and then that's it, to actually bringing it into a wheel of motion through time mm-hmm. that we're a part of. Mm-hmm. It does give us that resilient hope that you're yeah. speaking of, that the story isn't over. It's still, the Trinity is still unfolding, manifesting. You have to have a way to take any notion of a singular God that assures that that singular God is love. Otherwise, the whole thing is built on a wobbly foundation. How do we not know if God is not whimsical, doesn't change God's mind, doesn't get pissed off, forgive me? Mm. And Trinity achieves that. You know, there's a fancy phrase. The great discovery, Carl Rahner makes much of it, a number of Trinitarian theologians summarized in just a couple sentences. The, the great revelation is the Deus ad intra, God in the interior shape of God, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking is the Deus ad extra. The Deus ad intra is the Deus ad extra. That this pattern is the pattern of everything. Mm. That's uh, until you get to that point, you don't have a pastoral, fruitful, exciting, clarifying notion of God. But now we've got a God who is assured of being love. He isn't a God who changes his mind and one day is loving and the next day hates the Egyptians, Mm. which we were allowed to think for a while. We've said before how every metaphor limps. But when it comes to metaphors for the Trinity, we often give metaphors that not only limped, but just were kind of completely static. Like I think of like the clover or like an apple as being some of these descriptions I was taught as Trinity. And they were just kind of stuck. The apple? It was was so simplistic. It was like the core, the meat, and then the the peel or or the skin of the apple. But again, there was... static. Good word. It just doesn't have that same vibrancy that is needed to understand how we actually would participate in the Trinity. Yeah, yeah. You have to have dynamic language Mm -hmm. and metaphors of flow, a differentiation inside of deep connection. Mm. Yeah, well, you both are good students, good graduates of the living (laughs) school. You got it. But that we're coming back around to this recognition that without the foundation of an evolutionary worldview of the cosmos of creation, we do tend to orient more towards static Static. statements. And so I wonder, I'm just, and this is more out of curiosity is, you know how we refer to God as the ground of being. And I know that Eckhart talks about that a lot, but is it inaccurate to say the ground of becoming if we're trying to embrace a more dynamic principle, evolutionary principle And here's why. Maybe let me flesh this out. I think a lot about how the perfectionism that many of us experienced in Christianity, that we had to be perfect, that we had to almost eschew our humanity, it had a lot of the a lot of the foundations of that wasn't a static state. You're good or bad. Mm. You made a mistake, you are Mm. condemned. But when we think about it in principles of becoming in an evolutionary worldview, we're all in process and we're all in that growth principle that we talked about in the last episode. When I think about God as the ground of becoming, 
it's that, it's that loving inclusion of my imperfection that I feel permission for, for the first time as if, Oh, if I'm in relationship with that kind of God, Mm. then, then it's okay for me to not be fully arrived. It's okay for me to make mistakes. I can forgive myself and others. So, does ground of becoming work <laughs> to talk about God? I think it works very well. And let's just build on what we said a moment ago. The Deus ad intra is Deus ad extra. <laughs> the inner workings of God are the outer shape of the universe. Let's say the ground of being is the ground of becoming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. It works. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't think evolutionarily, we never came up with that. Someone must have already said that, I'm sure. But it works. I'm going to have to try it in the living school. And I think, yeah, and Teilhard does talk about the kind of evolutionary view. But what is beautiful to me about the way you said that ground of being is the ground of becoming. Is the ground of becoming. That then is a benevolent universe. Yeah, 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 yeah. It makes it benevolent. everything can be healed and grow and It's change. not over. Mm. Yeah. Nothing is over. And, you know, I've been spending some time lately reading Brene Brown's work. And she's, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with oh, her work. Yes. Oh. She's so popular. And I've been fascinated by the distinction she makes between shame and guilt. And she says, shame is when we take on the full identity of I am a mistake. I am a failure. She says, guilt is when we say, oh, I made a mistake. I need to make that right. Mm. That same distinction seems to be part of what we're looking at here because if we are in the ground of being, the ground of becoming, then I can see those mistakes and flaws in myself as growth opportunities, not not identities to get hooked by. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yes, yes. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. So thinking about that, being is the ground becoming, there's a lot of us who carry wounds from the image of God that we had where it was Mm -hmm. a sense of God in control of everything. Mm -hmm. Every corner is kind of rounded or Mm pre-planned versus a God that's participating with us. Mm -hmm. Holding up these kind of two polarities, how do we heal the one, the sense of God is in control of everything and almost like... uh, and I say as a deep wounding, as something that, that yeah. I experienced in my own evangelical upbringing, and shifting into a God that is participating with us. Yeah. How do you recommend someone learn to lean into that participation with God in the flow of Trinity versus this mm-hmm. almighty mm-hmm. from top down, not mm-hmm. from within? Mm-hmm. Well, let me say, first of all, that it does need to be healed because you stay with the God who is almighty. You have just created 15 major theological problems for everybody or they go into denial. Hmm. They just, religion is a language of pretend, but not a language that has anything to do with the real world or my real life. So it has to be healed. I'm not saying that our ancestors who probably died with that notion of God weren't beloved of God, but we made the journey very hard for them because it was all static, quantifiable, countable, measurable, retributive, enforceable. Oh, that's a cage you just can't get out of. 
So once you move from that economy, which is an economy of meritocracy, as we call it, to what I believe is the true understanding of the gospel, you stop counting, and you have time when you stop counting to recognize the flow, the participation, the, the uplift, the waves of grace that are uh, continue to flow through you, toward you, even on your bad days. But as long as you measure and count, it stops the flow. It really does, because you have a quick certitude about whether she deserves, whether I deserve, whether she's right, whether I'm right. You stop this closed-down counting and measuring. What happens is your quality of perception gets much more subtle. And while you're driving down the street, you can say, what is this vivifying? I want to deny it. I want to say it's not there, but it is there. There's a part of me wants to appreciate, that wants to forgive, that wants to start again, that wants to love, that wants to understand. All of those are broadening of a static universe. A static doesn't allow any of those that I just listed. Mm. doesn't allow you to understand, to forgive. It just, I got my conclusions, two plus two equals four. I know, and it's over. You're a bad person. But Trinitarian flow is movement, movement, movement. Let go of that narrative. Let go of that certitude, Let, even toward yourself. And we all have stories by which we've created our own narrative, as Brene Brown says, to shame ourselves or hate ourselves. And if you have a narrative toward yourself, you're going to have it toward everybody else. That she doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve, because he did this. Without forgiveness, the universe is going to freeze into another glacial period, I think. Well, I think what you're saying is bringing me into this awareness of the critical element of relationality to love, that love is relationship, that love is a verb, it's acted on. And I know Beatrice Bruteau has an expression where she says, where she's talking about the Trinity and in God's Ecstasy, her book on the Trinity, and she says, God is Godding, and we are Godding with God. <laughs> and the role of relationship and community to mirror back those stories like you were saying, and then to liberate each other from them is so important because well, we almost don't realize how stuck and static we get ourselves with our stories. And I recently had an experience where I had this deep reckoning with a significant mistake that I had made, a very, very costly mistake. And I went into a full-on shame spiral. I mean, I was just like, I am a terrible person, like on and on, days on end in sweatpants and destruction. I had a conversation with my spiritual director. Her name's Carla. Hey, Carla. I was talking to her and she looked at me and she said, you know what, Brie? I forgive you. I forgive mm, you. So if I can. Yes. <laughs> It's doable. It's, it was this uh -huh. shattering moment of love where I realized even though I had made a mistake and it was significant, it was costly, I was still 
worthy of love and forgiveness mm, in that. Lovely. And what it made me realize though, Richard, is exactly what you're saying. That it was like, oh my gosh, I am such a perfectionist. I'm holding that lens on everybody else. Yep, that's, <laughs> a, that's the price you pay. That the grace of that moment was that it opened me up to vulnerability, that in receiving love from her, I could then be in that flow of love with everybody in my life. And it just, I don't know, it was a very transformative experience, but well put. thinking about that as the role of, of the Trinity is helping us remember that we can't do any of this outside of community mm. and relationship. There's no flow of love without no. relationship. It seems obvious to say, but... It's the training ground. You will get no training or no practice if you isolate yourself. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been having... This past year, I had these two recurring dreams. Mm. One of the recurring dreams, it was like in grayscale, like black and white. And it was a, everything was very predictable and static. And the other recurring dream was um, bright colors. There was no sense of where the exterior began and where the interior began, of buildings, of p- how people participated. It's funny, you mentioned your spiritual director. I was, the day before I was supposed to get with my spiritual director, these two dreams converged into one dream. And when I was talking to my spiritual director, she was saying, we named one the insurance template and one the vivid template. And so to hear you talk about vivifying just really resonates for me because one is the known that feels safe. And I think a lot of that has to do with my own sense of some of those woundings and some of the, the vapor trails of those woundings, how they still inform me internally. Vapor trail, that's a good metaphor. <laughs> and then this other vivid template that is being, I'm being drawn into the wildness of God. And how do I hold these two? One that kept me safe and was served me for a, a period of my yeah, life. Yeah, it did. And I, I can bless that and thank yeah. it. But it is no longer of use for me Ooh. for deepening into how I'm supposed to participate in the flow. I bring that up as, as a way to talk about my own sense of how you don't necessarily always just jump from one to the other or, or a new sense of how the Trinity is alive in me and I'm alive in the Trinity, but that it is a deep calling that feels like there's there's risk in it mm-hmm. for those willing to seek out a new way of being in God. Could you speak to that, Richard? Does that resonate for you or am I off my rocker again, back in the bathtub? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you use the word risk, I couldn't help but think if you get in the flow that means the flow is going to move you from here to there, over which you will have little control. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a risk. We don't like a dynamic God. We, right. In fact, I find people would prefer a God who condemns them, if I don't, maybe not eternally, but who judges them harshly. It's been proven, at least in the past, people appreciate fire and brimstone sermons because they at least know what they should feel guilty about. They feel properly guilty, and that now makes them worthy. Hmm. But to actually live inside of a flow where God is constantly letting go of this wave, moving us into another wave that is better, that is also surrender. Hmm. So uh-huh. We hate the unknowable. We yeah. just hate the uncontrollable. So we don't really want a dynamic God, I don't think. And the the basic name of that is forgiveness. Mm. 
We don't want a God who forgives because, damn it, if he forgives my faults, he forgives Saddam Hussein or whoever else you want to pick. And who of us likes that? We're out of the realm of retributive justice now, which gives us false comfort. Only the ego would like that comfort. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I think, I know I bring this up a lot, Richard. I'm sorry that I do, but it's, it, for me, it's this image of creativity. Of course, if God is creator, if Trinity is in this creative process of manifesting, the invitation for us is to join in that process. And it is a risk. It's not knowing. It's, and it's that self-emptying love in the creative act that, that is the growing edge of our lives, of our love, of our of our work together, but it isn't comfortable. That's the thing. It's, it's uncomfortable. And so I'm thinking of, of Barbara Holmes because she has a way of describing contemplation in a Trinitarian kind of way mm. where she says the work of contemplation is in her words, entry, engagement, and effect. And I'm going to read some of her, her work here from Joy Unspeakable. She says, entry denotes a shift from the everyday world to the liminal space that worship creates. Engagement refers to the willingness to involve body and spirit in the encounter with the holy. It is upon this ground of covenantal reciprocity that relationship becomes paramount, like we were talking about Mm -hmm. a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Effect is often specific to the participating person or community. Those caught up in this intimacy with God explain that their experience expands their knowledge, awakens a palpable and actionable love, and is either a profoundly restorative resting in divine presence or a fire shut up in the bones that inspires action. Isn't that marvelous? It sure is. You have to read it twice, oh, yeah. don't you? At least, yeah. 
What I love about that idea, though, of, of contemplation and is entry engagement and effect is that it, it moves us into that Trinitarian life cycle in how we think about contemplation, because it's not just about the inner, like you were saying, just like the Trinity isn't just God within, but it's what happens in that flow of the inner, the connection that happens in engagement that results in some creative outcome and effect. I don't know, that helps me think in a Trinitarian lens toward practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, you can't sit still with the inner action, the inner aliveness. It's still happening. It's still happening. It's happening while I sleep. It's happening even when I'm unaware. Would you say, Richard, that if we understand that, or if we try to live into how she's describing contemplation as that flow, are we also the face of God then in this principle? Or do we have an opportunity to at least manifest that more? I think that's the final effect. Well, maybe not the final, but it's the goal. You know, we used to say sacramenta pro popolo. The sacraments are not in themselves. They're for the sake of the people. They're for the sake of a transformative effect in human beings. And if we just had obeyed that, at least in the Catholic Church, is this redoing Mass every day or a confirmation every year, changing anybody. The preoccupation became doing the ritual right, validly, licitly, correctly, with the bishop wearing the right outfit. You know, it's just, we lost the whole point. Mm -hmm. That it has to be becoming face, becoming a person, becoming a human being, becoming a a relationship. What's that book of C.S. Lewis that I used to quote so much? When something has faces? Uh, Until we have faces? Until we have faces, yeah. Uh, I always just loved the title. (laughs) And I've often thought the incarnation was able to happen 2,000 years ago, the personal incarnation, because humanity was beginning to have face, Hmm. which is capable of interface. Hmm. And until you have the capacity for subject-to-subject relationship, you don't have full encounter. Hmm. Now, God loved everybody before that, but they couldn't enjoy, in general, the full fruits of that. Whereas you and I are given the the grace, the freedom to enjoy a face-to-face encounter, as it were. Which speaks to the vulnerability of God, right? Like how could God not be vulnerable if this is not the way we are in relationship? Mm -hmm. Oh, you two get it. I'm so glad you're my my inquisitor, (laughs) (laughs) my questioners. Thank you. I um, read this interview with Wendell Berry recently where he's talking about there's a lot of fear about artificial intelligence replacing human work. Mm. And he said that one of the things that artificial intelligence can't do is they can't do work with love. To me, it seems like that is part of how not only the gift of being human, wow, that's big, but the gift of being human in relationship with the flow of Trinity is that we can do this work with love, whether it's doing the mass or whether it's bathing our children mm-hmm. or coming to work every day. When we add or show up with love, 
we have that potentiality to reveal the face of God to one mm-hmm, another mm-hmm. and be that gateway. And I'm just wondering if you could reflect on that. On the, Gee, doing the I'm going to quote love. that. Who said that? Wendell Berry. God, he says so many good things. I know. I love him, yeah. Artificial intelligence can do many things, but it can't do them with love. Wow. I don't know how I comment on it. <laughs> I'm in awe of it, of the truth of that. And why, that's why love is the changing quantity, the changing quality that moves a ordinary action to a not just a human but a divine action. Mm. And without it, it's we really are just rational animals. Yeah. Which is, you know, the definition of Homo sapiens that persisted till recent era. Rational animal, human being is irrational. It's not bad, but <laughs> it's not very exciting either. Yeah, it's fine. I just recalled an experience of recent when we were traveling over the Christmas holidays. We were, my family was, we were on a bus to go catch an airplane. And having two small children on a bus is not very fun. But the bus driver, speaking of work with love, she asked my children's name and then started singing songs about them over the intercom. You're kidding. And (laughs) it made a moment that could have been tedious and frustrating, which had been the morning after that point. Lovely. Just changed the whole travel day. Oh, isn't that neat? And I was like, wow, she just revealed the love of God Uh through her singing to my kids on a very mundane bus ride. But to me, that, that is the work work done with love yeah, has yeah. that opportunity. That's beautiful. Yeah, when you have two little ones, an experience I'll never know, but you just can't be unaware for 30 seconds on a moving anything. <laughs> two of them. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So as we wrap up this episode, we've been thinking it would be a great way to end each of these themes by asking, how do we practice this one? Mm. And in many ways, Paul, what you just offered from Wendell Berry is a profound invitation of living out the Trinity, to do our work with love. But I wonder, Richard, if, if you have any invitation for us of how we can practice this tenet, how we can live into the ground of being as the ground of becoming and trust the benevolent universe that is in flow with us? I hope this makes sense. There's a certain way where we can soften our gaze. Mm. There's a hard gaze. You can see it, speaking of on the way to an airport, in so many people traveling. It's a hard gaze of anxiety, irritation, rush. Every... 20 people, you'll meet one who has a soft gaze and you just want to rush toward them. What did they do to achieve that? And then uh, seeing that immediately makes me aware, how often am I carrying a soft gaze? I remember one time right here in the Albuquerque airport, there's the escalators going up to the departure area. I'm late for a plane and I rush right in head, ahead of somebody. It really was rude. Once I got on, I really, and I turned around to apologize. <laughs> and it was one of the students in the living school. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and you could oh, tell awesome. they were rather shocked. Well, this is Richard. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the real world, he pushes old ladies to the side. <laughs> oh, God, I felt stupid. Uh, I felt so phony. But I'm sure in whenever you're rushing, you have the hard gaze. Mm. Yeah. You do. Determination, focus, over-focus. What made me think I was going to get there any quicker? Rushing onto that elevator. I apologize, but I'm not sure she believed it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was my humiliation for the day. How do we practice it? It starts with the way you gaze. And, And there is a choicefulness in softening your gaze. I'm delighted in these last year even how I can feel myself much more capable of that because I'm not on a timetable like I was most of my life. There's just much more time to do that, much more freedom to be present. How many opportunities I must have missed by spending 50 years on deadlines. Mm. That God taught me anything is, is amazing. Once you soften the gaze, then you soften the heart. It comes quickly, right afterwards. That doesn't seem too abstract. Does that make sense? No, I think it's, oh, it's deeply practical good. to look at each other and look at reality with a soft gaze that is present to wonder. I mean, it, be, it brings me back to both the bathtub stories that mm. we shared because it's without that loving gaze, we miss the flow. Yeah. So how can we hope to enter into it if we're not present to where it is. <laughs> there you go. Well put. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. The practicality of just stay out of Richard's way in an airport. In an airport. Wherever you are. If you out. see Richard, He's run. He's going to charge in front of you. And <laughs> Dive to the left or right. Push ladies to the side <laughs> so he can get to his damn plane. Poor living school student. <laughs> Should we turn to a couple of the voicemail questions on oh, this sure. thing? Let's, yeah, yeah. Let's, Let's do it. Let's do it. I reflected on the second theme, foundation. God is the ground of being and on our side. And Jesus is the face of God. In this reflection, I realized a truth that Jesus cannot give ultimate solution to our problems in life, which is our concern most of the time. Because he himself had the same destiny which he knowingly accepted in his three years of radical living. This was in order to accomplish a mission of compassion and saving love. I understand this as a good foundation which will build us up. But to follow him, it requires a change in one's own heart and not expecting a change outside there. It needs courage to make a radical decision to discover every day some new creative practice to be in the likeness of Jesus in some form, even when it is not at all easy. Am I right? In fact, I am trying to practice it this way with many failures. My question is, how can I sustain such awareness and practices? What I heard her saying was she's realizing that this foundation is an invitation to practice daily the creative flow, Mm. an opportunity to live as Jesus did. 
daily. Daily. But she says, I'm trying to practice this with many failures. She says, how do we sustain such a, such a practice? Beautifully said. Sustaining is a good word. Because what makes you give up is the humiliation of not succeeding. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And you have to say to yourself, and I've only learned this because I do it, is what part of me is so damn humiliated this time, you know? Because Richard wasn't perfect again, or Richard didn't do it right again, or people think less of Richard who wants to be thought well of. That's the discouragement, the lack of courage to move ahead. Now, once you are too humble to be humiliated, if I could just put it in the way James Finley would probably put it, <laughs> uh, you don't get discouraged because, or now I'll call an Anthony DeMello. I'm an ass, you're an ass. What can you expect from an ass? <laughs> Once you live in your properly humbled state, and in this case, humbled is not a put down. Mm -hmm. It's not a lack of dignity. It's discovering your dignity at such a foundational level and that it has nothing to do with your meritocracies. Your practice is to not let your failure humiliate you. Hmm. And to the degree your failures humiliate you, to that degree you're still trapped in ego. Mm -hmm. To that degree you're still narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And believe me, that is still totally true for me at my age. I don't know that it ever changes. Who of us likes to fail Ugh. in our own eyes or other people's eyes? But you can get a little better at it. <laughs> at least it seems to me you can, a little. It seems like that also gets at the, the canonic principle, the self-emptying mm. principle that we talk a lot about in that, that wheel of love, of love emptying itself, which is that we are in that humiliation. We are emptied of ourselves that get in the way of love in a way, if that makes sense. But I, I'm experiencing this so deeply lately, just kind of facing some some mistakes and recognizing that the opportunity to soften into that and see my own imperfection is the the turn of love within myself so that then I can look at others with that kind of absolute accepting love. Mm -hmm. So I do see what you're saying, Richard. It's It's an invitation to see failure differently, which is why I think one of your tenets is that that is the path. <laughs> Falling upward, you got it. It is. Yeah. Well, it's Jesus' path. And it speaks to what you were saying earlier about your experience with your spiritual director yeah. of learning to have to forgive ourselves for the ways we can't sustain it on our own. Yeah. And yes. so that willingness to forgive and try again. You make yourself incapable of grace. You don't want grace. Mm. Mm -hmm. You want to pull it off by yourself. Last question. Hello, my name is John Glinsman, and I'm a current student in the Living School and my question is about core principle number two. For me, this question is a practical question. It comes out of my lived experience. And what I'm wondering about is, as we look at the future of Christianity and these seven core values and how these would interface with the global era that we live in, I am wondering about countries like Sweden, where I used to live, 
which is one of the most secular countries in the world. And words like Christ, even universal Christ and Jesus are not words that are typically received well and that typically probably do not lead to a further place of conversation. And so what my question is, is without that specific Christian framework, what are the ways to inspire hope that truly is universal, that is not um, referenced around Christianity or Trinity? This is largely true of the United States, or maybe I should say increasingly true. It's what we call secularism, that the sacred, if it points to true transcendence, is an embarrassment. It's almost not allowed. The trouble is, if you water down the notion of sacred, and it doesn't point to true holy, 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 beyond, 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 big, big, big. It doesn't work. It's magic, if I can say it that way. That's dangerous. But but you have to start there. And we struggle with this here at the Living School, as you've probably sensed. We want to use a universal language. I ran into Margaret Wheatley uh, last month, the wonderful woman who develops uh, leaders. And she told me the book she's writing right now is on sacred words. And she promised that she would send it to me as soon as she finishes it. She says, once she tries to make the case, I can't wait to hear her case, that once a culture stops using authentically sacred words, like Jesus, like Trinity, that leave us out of control out of understanding, that it's very soon that a whole culture becomes secular. You have to have sacred words to retain a sense of the sacred. So all I'm saying is don't accommodate so much or don't be so eager to please that you lose your own sense of the sacred. And that's what's happened in a lot of Western Europe and is now accelerating here at a very quick pace. Now that's furthered, in my opinion, rather cheap way, God language, Jesus language is thrown around mm. in America. Yeah, just the people who use it, use it so glibly and as ammunition and as certitude. So I'm afraid we're driving people in this direction. I can understand your question. We're being driven away from sacred words because people use sacred words in such an unsacred way without due respect. You've got to almost meet an authentic believer. Like when Barbara Holmes, uh, in several conversations I had with her, when she speaks of God, you wouldn't think of dismissing it. You know, it comes from an authentic place. And anybody who's suffered seems to have a greater ability to use sacred words. Forgive me, this is unkind. But rich white people who've never failed at anything. When they use God language, it just is no longer credible. 
It's no longer believable. And maybe that's what you're facing. And, I mean, I have nothing against Sweden. Paul, right here, uh -oh. looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> With my Swedish face. <laughs> is Swedish. But it is a very white country, huh? Highly comfortable, successful country. It doesn't make them bad people. There's a whole bunch of things about the gospel that are going to be very hard for them to know. Devotion that you talked about, Brie. Devotion won't come easily. I hope that speaks some or sheds some little light on the question. But in principle, I agree with what you said. The whole school tries to do that. But I, I'm always warning the school against, don't go too far, don't go too far, or you become that. Mm. It worries me sometimes that a lot of our people, I never hear them pray in the second person mm. to God. They pray in the third person about God. That's one of the first steps away from subject to subject, interface. So thanks. And may what I have said contribute to your compassion and understanding, not discourage it. Beautiful. Thank Thanks, you, Richard. Richard. You're welcome. Okay. Those damn Swedes. Those so Swedes. Swedes. Get in the way. Being you know, so it's funny, secular, though. those Swedes. In, in Scandinavia, you're born into the church. So you're a member yeah. unless you oh. go revoke your membership. Same in Germany. Yeah. Uh -huh. And how that, what that does is just creates no no agency and choice in what yeah, does it mean a, to be a part yeah, of the, a, the community. Yeah, yeah. And it's the Lutheran church. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which is like the covenant church that I grew up in was did not like that. So it was a pietist movement that, oh. that they were kind of the, the rebels who moved away from that, oh. which is oh. pious my rebels. My friends were like me. So they, my dad was, he belonged to the Lutheran church. I didn't grow up in the Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. But my family paid me money just to go through the catechism class. And in Germany, a lot of my friends, their families were the same way. They were Lutheran by, by what tradition? Culture, yeah. But they would give their kids money as a gift if they completed a catechism class. How interesting. How weird is that? It's almost like they want, it's a, I guess, like an assurance that you'll maybe continue the tradition. Yeah. You know? All right. Thank Love you, Richard. This has been fun. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.